0: As we continue in worship, uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to be reading a section uh, from, from Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 5 and reading through verse 25. Uh, we'll also be behind me, but if you, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to, to open to that so we can read together. Uh, and I invite you to stand as we open God's Word together. and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Amen. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Well, you know, angels aren't what we think they are, generally speaking. As C.S. Lewis observed in his preface to his little book, The Screwtape Letters, in modern days, people tend to go one of two ways with angels and demons. Either we just dismiss them as superstitions or we obsess over them. Neither one is correct or healthy, About 10 years ago, Ginger and I vacationed with her family in the Smoky Mountains, and in the house where we were staying, there was a plaque with a bad poem on it. It's the sort, you know the ones that drive English majors nuts. I forget the exact wording on it, I, I think I might be repressing it, but the idea was that there are angels all around us, and they crave attention, so we should leave little presents around or talk to them throughout our day so that they'll bless us. It was bad poetry combined with bad theology. I think they may be confused angels for leprechauns, I'm not sure, but regardless, there is very little that we really do know about angels, but we do know this much. Angels are not cute, precious moments babies with wings. And angels are not our loved ones who have died, either. Angels are a separate kind of creature, a spiritual creature made by God. Sometimes when they appear to people, they look like men. Other times they're dazzling beings with aspects of different animals. There's a reason that almost every time an angel appears to someone, his first words are, fear not. Angels are terrifying. But not quite in that way. A few people are trying desperately not to blink right now, and the rest of you have never seen Doctor Who. But those aren't biblical angels either. When we read about the heavenly host, that doesn't mean a divine maitre d'. It doesn't really mean an angelic choir either. A host is an army. Angels are the warrior messengers of God. When we read about angels, we should think less of naked babies with wings or beautiful women in white gowns and more about a huge army that only Elisha had eyes to see. We should think of fearsome warriors who made grown men fall on their faces in terror. Maybe something like this. The Bible indicates that most angels still serve God but others rebelled, and those are now Satan and his demons. And that might all seem a bit fantastical, even crazy. But I think it also seemed that way 2,000 years ago in Judea. Israel had passed through foreign control to heroic freedom, only to fall back into corruption, and now oppression under the rule of Rome, 400 years had passed with no prophecy, no word from God. But in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and suddenly God shows up. His angel appears to Zechariah in the temple, and Zechariah's life and the world was forever changed. Because angels might be terrifying warriors, but they are also messengers, and they were the first ones sent to bring the good news of Jesus to people. This Advent season, we're going to be looking at those messages of the angels in the opening chapters of the Gospels. This week, I'd like us to consider this message of Gabriel that we read today. We'll also look at Zechariah's response And we'll think a little bit about how we should respond today. So first, as we look at Gabriel's message, we see that his first words reveal personal knowledge of Zechariah. Names were important in ancient Israel. Knowing someone's name represented intimacy and power. And the meaning of a name carried an important message. So Gabriel addresses Zechariah in Hebrew, Zechariah whose name means he whom God remembers. He mentions his wife, Elizabeth, Elisheva. God is my oath. And he says that their son should be named John, Yohanan, God is gracious. All of these names and their meanings are significant for the message Gabriel gives because it is a message saturated with past Prophecy. Even from the first words of the passage we read, I think we're meant to remember another Zechariah. He was a prophet-priest of the Old Testament. One of the books of the Bible carries his name. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, offered encouragement and challenge to the returned exiles of Judah. He lived in a different time, but it was one that was no less troubling. After a period of hope and joy after their return from exile, the political winds had passed by Judah. The economy was poor. Taxes were high. There were threats of war between major world powers. God's people seemed increasingly marginalized. And the temple where God's name would dwell was a weary, half abandoned construction site with little progress to show after decades. It was seen as a day of small things. Hope for a political or moral awakening seemed fruitless, and many questioned whether following God was even worth it. Maybe people just needed to seek their own good and find the best life they could given the circumstances. In the middle of the decline, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, proclaimed that hope was not dead. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, he said. God would once again dwell in their midst. A new ruler was coming in humility and strength, bringing salvation, freedom, and cleansing. He would be rejected by his people, but God himself would redeem his flock and restore them. Zechariah writes, God's words, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And uncleanness. So years later, in the days of Herod, we come to another Zechariah, husband of Elizabeth. He was also a priest, and the word of the Lord comes to him in the temple while he's offering incense, which represented the prayers of the people. We're told right off the bat that Zechariah was righteous, but... Despite following all of the rules, despite serving God faithfully as a priest, despite marrying a woman from the priestly line, one lack clearly aided him. By this point, the elderly Zechariah had probably given up on ever having a son, of ever having an heir, of ever holding his own child. But notice that Gabriel's word goes quickly beyond Zechariah's immediate situation very quickly he pivots to the hope that this child would give to all of God's people because in fact the days of Herod weren't that much different from the days of the son of Berechiah the broader Roman world was a sensual materialistic society people scoffed at this backwater province that claimed there was just one God and that he had revealed himself to them and wanted them to live holy lives. They were still waiting for that righteous ruler. Herod the Great was a cruel, paranoid, and arrogant king appointed by Rome. He, he wasn't even Jewish. He called himself King of the Jews, but notice that Luke carefully calls him King of Judea. The rulers of the Jewish people, called the Sadducees, were cynical Jaded, having only the shell of religion, but not even believing in the supernatural or an afterlife. They were about pursuing political power to hold on to what they had of Israel's greatness. A few of God's people, the Pharisees, found comfort in legalism, trying to keep every last one of God's commandments and the traditions of men, and they were full of disdain for everyone else who fell short. And most people, well, most people just kept their heads down, trying to do what they could to get by and not worrying too much about God because what was he really going to do anyway? So in the middle of this hopelessness, Gabriel brings a message of hope. It connects to a number of Israel's prophets. John will be the child of a barren woman, just like Isaac to Sarah. Jacob to Rebekah, Joseph to Rachel, Samson to Manoah's wife. John must not drink wine or strong drink. That's the language of a Nazarite vow, like Samson and Samuel, one set apart for full commitment to God. Like Jeremiah, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. John will go before God himself in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now we just finished walking through the life of Elijah, so this should bring to mind a lot of different things. John will be Elijah's heir, just like Elisha before him. His clothes will be described like Elijah's. His fiery preaching will reverberate like Elijah's. His boldness before rulers will mirror Elijah's. And even his weary doubts will echo Elijah's. And what's more, John will fulfill the words of Malachi, the last prophet of Israel before those 400 years of silence. Listen to how Gabriel's words echo Malachi chapter 4. "'Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes.' And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What's Gabriel's message? God isn't done yet. He is going to fulfill all of his promises. He isn't going to destroy his people. He is going to restore his people. Have hope. Have hope. Zechariah, it will be glorious and it will be heartbreaking because John, your son, will usher in this new day. He will be the heir of Elijah. He will be the sum of all of the prophets before him. He will be the one preparing in that wilderness of Israel's spiritual exile a highway for our God. Is it any wonder that Jesus would say, I tell you, Among those born of woman, none is greater than John. But how does Zechariah respond? How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. On the surface, this is a question about how God will do this. After all, Zechariah says, we're old. Things don't work like they used to. Reminds me that there was a church who held a marriage seminar, and the pastor invited Luigi to come and speak. He was approaching his 50th wedding anniversary, and he asked him to share some insight into how he managed to stay married all those years. And Luigi said, well, I, I tried to treat her well, I tried to spend some money on her, but by far the best thing I ever did was to take her to Italy for our 10th wedding anniversary. Pastor said, Luigi, you're, you're an inspiration to all of us. Please, can you tell us what you're going to do f- for your wife for your 50th wedding anniversary? And Luigi proudly replied, I think I'm going to go back to Italy and get her. <clears throat> There's a strong contrast, isn't there, between Gabriel's response to Zechariah's question and his response and his response to Mary's question just a few verses later. Zechariah is rebuked. Mary is comforted. Zechariah is struck deaf and dumb. Mary is given a song. I think this is because Zechariah's response isn't so much wondering about the mechanism of this birth. This wasn't uncharted territory. No, Zechariah's question reveals his doubt whether God really will fulfill his promises. Just as Gabriel moved quickly past Zechariah's personal situation, I think Zechariah does the same thing. But unlike Abraham, Zechariah didn't look up at the stars and believe God. No, he looked directly at God's messenger and said, this is a day of small things. I'm an old man. I've seen a lot, and I don't think anything is going to change anytime soon. But of all people, Zechariah the priest should have known. Zechariah should have believed. Zechariah should have hoped. Instead, he whom God remembered had forgotten God. He asks, how shall I know this? Basically, prove it. And what's the answer? I am Gabriel. I think that name is important. Zechariah should have known that name. It was Gabriel who appeared to Daniel in Babylon some 550 years earlier. So I think announcing his name was a little bit of a smackdown to Zechariah. You think you're old, Zechariah? I met with Daniel half a millennium ago. This message isn't new. It's the same message you have had all along with you in God's Word. And you have failed to believe it, you have forgotten, you've lost hope. It's important to remember where this is happening. Zechariah is standing in the holy place inside the temple, offering incense to God. This was the temple built by Herod the Great to placate the Jewish people. It was a beautiful and magnificent building, even if it was still under construction in Zechariah's day. Now, centuries earlier in Solomon's temple, before the exile, the Ark of the Covenant sat behind the veil of the most holy place. In there, it was overshadowed by two cherubim, fearsome angels, each with a 15-foot wingspan. The poles for carrying the Ark of the Covenant extended out through the veil, reminding the priests who entered the temple that they were in God's presence. But Zechariah knew that as impressive as Herod's temple was, that room behind the veil was just an empty room. The ark had been lost. Those cherubim destroyed. It was just an empty room. And so he's troubled and fearful when he sees this terrifying angel standing beside the altar of incense. He wasn't expecting anything to happen. Notice that Gabriel says he stands in the presence of God. I wonder if he meant a a double meaning by this a glimpse of the reality hidden from our eyes. You see, on the one hand, that's just Gabriel's job description. His name means hero of God. His job, like in the court of an earthly king, is to stand in the presence of his sovereign as a trusted official and warrior. But at that moment, it was also a statement of present fact. Right there in Herod's temple, Even in a temple built by a sinful king who didn't know God, Gabriel is standing in God's presence. And he's reminding Zechariah, so are you. I think Gabriel is saying, you think this room behind me is empty? You think this incense and these prayers are going up into thin air? Zechariah, you have forgotten that you are standing in the presence of God. And so Gabriel strikes Zechariah with the holy mute button. But God's plan is not derailed by Zechariah's doubt. And praise God for that. It is such a testimony to that divinely appointed name, John. God is gracious that God continues to use Zechariah, the one God remembered but who forgot God. It's also interesting that Elizabeth finally conceives after Zechariah is struck deaf and dumb, but I'm not going to touch that at all. No, God's word, if we truly allow God to use it in our lives, won't really let us off the hook. So we have to ask how we will respond to that message of the angel. You know, our day might seem very different from Zechariah's. You know, he lived in a sensual, materialistic society that scoffed at claims there was just one God, that he had revealed himself and he wanted people to live holy lives. Zechariah lived under a cruel, paranoid, and arrogant king who wore the mantle of religion with none of the fruit. He lived in a time when religious leaders cozied up to political power to preserve their own authority. He lived in a time when some of the religious people settled for extreme legalism and disdain for everyone who didn't measure up. He lived in a time when many people abandoned the idea of having a relationship with God altogether because what good does it do anyway? So they sought their own way in life. Maybe our day isn't so different after all. Do you feel like Zechariah today? Like you're righteous, but? Are you holding on to something that you feel God hasn't given you? Maybe you haven't met that special person or gotten that job or seen that relationship restored or found healing. Or like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you haven't had that child and you wonder if it's all worth it. But in fact, like Zechariah, and even more than Zechariah, we have been given the fulfillment of the great promises of God. So we have to hear the message of the angels and the apostles and the prophets, and we must dare to hope. Hear that Zechariah, God remembers. God knows your name. He knows your situation and your struggles, and he has made a way. Maybe not the way you would choose, maybe not giving you everything you've asked for, but he has made his great and wise way. Because hear that, Yohanan, God is gracious. He has reached down to us when we could not reach up to him. As the son of Berechiah prophesied, Jesus was pierced for our sake on the cross, and he has opened that fountain for all of us to cleanse us from our sin and uncleanness. Hear that Elisheva, God is our oath. He wants his name to be on our lips, that we will turn many to the Lord our God, that we may be part of making ready a people prepared for eternity. That's not the angel's job anymore. It's ours. Will we dare to believe that God will fulfill his great promises? Will we do so even if others scoff? Will we dare to hope? Because just like he used Zechariah, God wants to use us in his great plan for all of creation. You know, Advent, within the calendar of the church, has always had a dual focus. On the one hand, it looks back to the first advent of our Savior, when God himself set foot in our broken and dying world. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we all deserve so that we can be restored to relationship with him. On the other hand, we look forward to that second advent of our Savior, when Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead, when we will see that beautiful new Jerusalem and live with him forever and ever. And in between, we are the advent. We are the temple. We don't have an ark or angels to see most of the time. But that room isn't empty. If we've accepted Jesus as our Savior, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are constantly standing in the presence of God. I notice that Luke bookends this passage with the phrase, in the days. At the beginning, we're told that all of this is happening in the days of Herod, king of Judea, with all of the implications that that brings. Like Zechariah, we can focus on the challenges of our world and our lives. We can doubt God's goodness and his ability to save us. We can ask, how shall I know this? And we can live our lives as though none of it is really true. And we will live with our testimony and God's power muted in our world. But at the end, Elizabeth sees herself as living in the days when God looked on me to take away my reproach. We can trust that God hears our prayers. We can commit ourselves to loving God with everything we've got and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We can walk that high ridge Pastor Jeff has spoken of, embracing and proclaiming God's truth and living out God's love with abandon you know when Zechariah was able to speak again? It was when the first part of that angel's message was fulfilled and his son was born. His relatives thought the baby's name should be the same as his father's, but Zechariah wrote on a tablet, his name is John. The Lord is gracious. Zechariah then burst forth in gracious song. He was now a prophet. He now believed that he wasn't living in the days of Herod, king of Judea, but in the days when God had looked upon his people. Zechariah said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, as living in the days of Herod, king of Judea? Do we live in a day of small things? Or do we live in the days when God, our true king, has looked upon us to take away our reproach? Do you know his salvation? Have you seen the light dawn? Do you know, Emmanuel, God is with us? If we do, let's live like it. Let's live in hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this message that Gabriel brought. We thank you that you are gracious, that despite Zechariah's doubt, you still used him, You turned his heart around. God, will you do that again today? For those of us who feel that we are living in the days of Herod, when we feel like there isn't hope, God, will you restore your hope to us? Strengthen us to put our hope and our trust in you. Strengthen us to proclaim your goodness, to proclaim that you have remembered and you are gracious and that you save. In Jesus' name, amen.